So before I'm offering some reflections for the evening, I'd just like to make a few minutes available to hear from you. What's what's going on? What's standing out? Where are you at? That seems significant at the end of the first day. Significant or challenging or uh, what's the juice of the moment? Anyone? It's a way of asking you to respond out loud, I guess. (laughs) To the question... We've been asking ourselves since yesterday evening, you know, what's happening now? I'd like to, but I started earlier, so I'm a bit self-conscious about doing it again. Okay. Yes, <laughs> good. Thank you. It's a service to others who are feeling more shy or intimidated. Um, it was a connection with what I said to you earlier, and after you spoke to me. It was about, I realised about, for me it's about sort of demystifying my experience. Because mm-hmm. I think, despite the fact that I've been meditating for years, I still catch myself sometimes looking for this special experience. And I've got this term, meet and veg experience. You know, people say meet and veg, blah, blah, which means sort of common or garden. Mm. And I just realised that most of the time, a lot of the time, you know, feeling of the breath, feeling of my feet on the ground, it's all quite sort of. Mm. It's not very mystical at all, it's very ordinary. Yeah. And nice. It's just a bit just the first contact, the first experience, staying with that rather than trying to make it into something more or wishing it was something more, looking for something else that's better. Or yeah. yeah. Sort of meat and veg experience. That's what came up today. Yeah, good. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know this saying in Zen, and I, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it, it's something like, you know, first of all, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And then mountains become the great shining jewels of the infinite and the rivers are the, you know, cascades of impermanence or something. And then mountains are mountains again, rivers are rivers again. And I think what happens often is when our experience first starts to open up, it can seem very impressive, very cosmic, very kind of a wow, because it's so different from our initial earlier experience and yet actually you know when the the kind of barriers between ourself and life first seem to first start to break down that can seem very extraordinary and actually what quite commonly happens i think along the way as we as we continue to practice is that we get more familiar with with a kind of a more intimate experience with life right so it doesn't have the same kind of wow quality anymore we get used to the intimacy. And then it might happen easily that we say, oh, that intimacy was so impressive, so wowish. Where's the wow factor gone in my practice? And that's what the Zen saying is referring to then. Oh, mountains are mountains and rivers again. What you're calling meat and veg, right? Oh, feet on the ground. Being where I am rather than... Uh, wrapped up in some old story, abstracted from myself. And then we notice, oh, the tendency towards abstraction, rather than going in all this stuff about me and my issues and my history and my relationships and my this, oh, now it starts to, what it wants to hang on to is my spiritual experiences, trying to make much of. And so it sounds sounds great to come back to the, the letting, you know, letting the ordinary be important because that's what we've got right moment by moment body feet on the ground breath coming in and out and there's something a way of that we really deeply kind of honor life by letting that be where we meet it rather than kind of demanding that we meet it on this sort of cosmic plane of some something expansive something impressive something shiny mm. yeah, I think Mm-hmm. So sort of keeping away from the tea and 
difficult. Yeah, yeah. So just worth to inquire, what is it, what's, what is it difficult? What's so difficult about the ordinary? What's so threatening about it? And it can be very threatening, because it can seem like it's going to take... It take, can, can take our usual productions and uh, dramas away. I can feel like I'm going to disappear yeah. if I don't have my familiar dramas and details. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, Michelle. That's sort of the opposite. Um, I find the more that I can connect, um, maybe it's just the earlier part, but the more that I can connect the more that I see, like you say, like, like expanding, you know, on the in-breath. And I see, well, some parts are expanding and some parts are mm-hmm. contracting and some parts are expanding later. Like, and I start to get completely overwhelmed and then then that's where I kind of shut off and, and kind of start to not connect, start to go into thoughts or thinking or something else. There's, there's sort of fear as that expands. It's like, how can I think of Yeah, so there is so much going on. You know, it's true in a way that anything we open up could reveal so much. It's like you know, I often speak about meditation being like putting our life under a microscope. And normally, we normal level of looking, we see oh, was this detail, but the small things, there's nothing going on there, right? Mm-hmm. And yet if you put that under a microscope, oh, you see so much detail. Mm-hmm. Put an atom under the microscope, oh, then there's whatever there are in atoms, neutrons and electrons, maybe, and, you know, <laughs> subatomic stuff. So in the same way, if we just open up, and as attention becomes refined, you know, the usual sense of time and space can open up very, very much. So what might happen in the course of a momentary breath, it can be extraordinary amount of depth and aspect to it. And it sounds like that's what you're noticing, and there's something going on there that, that makes it feel too much or overwhelming in some way. So what's overwhelming about it? maybe now that you ask that it's like um, maybe because I'm trying to track and categorize and make sure I know it's seen it's maybe it's that part that's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. To really it's not just the seeing it it's I don't know you don't have to keep track of all of it <laughs> yeah. but it's yeah it's, it's like this extra little thing that's kind of on it, that's like on each bit, and then that. And what's the extra little thing? Just that, it's sort of that making sure that I'm aware, make sure, like it's a little bit noting, I guess. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I'm not really doing noting, but it, it's kind of similar to that. It's like I want to kind of notice mm-hmm. each thing, and then there's a little bit that's kind of saying, oh, that, this, that, this, this. Okay, okay. So let it be, let it do its thing. The little note, the little bit that wants to kind of get it, have it all down and know what it is and note everything. Just let it do its thing, and and let your let the um, let your attention, you know, prioritize the the visceral aspect, the immediate aspect, even though the noting part of it's going on. Let it be, you know, just a secretary, a note taker that follows round the, the main boss. Right? The main boss is the focus is, is on the actual unfolding, and the note taker is just doing its note taking thing. Mm. 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 
Don't try to make any particular experiences come to light, but pay attention to the ones that are coming to light. So rather than deciding that neutral experience is where it's at, right? see what the quality of your experience actually is. Maybe some neutral aspects, maybe pleasant, maybe unpleasant. Um, we'll, we'll kind of explore that facet of experience during the days. But at the moment, especially if you find that you're kind of casting around looking for a, a, a particular quality, in this case, called neutral, rather than the casting around for now, let it be enough to let, you know, this just this kind of basic training in presence that we're doing. You know, so that our attention can steady and still and sensitize and stabilize, lots of S's, enough to actually then be able to clearly discern the quality of our experience. Right? When, there's, when there's a kind of um, a brightness and a stability to our attention, then it's like a really... Um, then it's like a really finely honed tool to be able to explore the various qualities of our experience, the, 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 the forming and unforming of whatever's moving within us. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought I'd kind of, just to test the water a little bit, to take the temperature of the retreat see what's standing out for you for some of you I was reflecting again I think I mentioned it last night on this this ambitious title that we of the retreat whole life whole practice and then I realized oh feeling some pressure I've got to bring the whole of life in I've got to and the contrasting that and thinking maybe from your side the, the contrast with this idea of the whole of my life with its history, with its joys, with its struggles with, uh, with all the bits that make up what I call my life and of course we might have room for some doubt as to the degree to which what I call my life actually corresponds to the reality of what, what is my life, this life, the whole of life. But the contrast between what seems to make up the whole of our life, and particularly the troublesome aspects of it, right, which are the ones we're interested in resolving, in understanding, in seeing through. The contrast between these struggles that I face in my life and this being here today, this practice, this sitting quietly, walking quietly, eating quietly, this bringing the mind back again and again to what's happening now. And we might say, and it's what I'd like to explore a little bit, what's, what's the link? Really? What's the relevance for this whole of my life with all of its implications and associations and this training of the mind, this meditation? Reminds me of the, the opening lines of the Dhammapada. Dhammapada is a, a collection of, of a, a few sort of pithy verses a few, a few, a few hundred pithy verses of the Buddhas, just like a short two or four lines, kind of like aphorisms. And the very opening lines of the of the Dhammapada say, uh, "Mind precedes all phenomena. All phenomena are preceded by mind." So I thought, "Wow, we could let's." No, but like like all really, you know, good pithy sayings, and like we were just saying with Michel, like any aspect of experience, there's no degree, there's no limit to the degree to which we can open that up, 
What does that mean? Mind precedes all things. All things are preceded by mind. Mind, mental associations, mental reactivity, accumulated ideas, shorthand for all that, mind. Mind shapes all phenomena, all experience. All ideas we have about ourselves are shaped by our mind. All ideas we have about others, all the interpretation... Excuse me. It's the soup coming back. All the perceptions of the world are shaped by mind. So then certainly we might say, well, if that's true, that's the premise, let's explore it a little bit. If that's true, I should be maybe very, very, very interested in this mind, in the shaping, the proceeding that it does to my experience. Let me pay attention, not even to accept that statement, mind precedes all things, but to look and see... Again, like we were saying last night, look and see how might mind be shaping all things, all phenomena. Kind of conventional view, the sort of rational or scientific view, the view we've we've mostly grown up with, the view that's sort of prevalent in our culture, prevalent through education, prevalent through kind of mainstream, at least sort of high school level science, unless school has gotten a lot more progressive since I was there. The kind of, the sort of lowest common denominator cultural view we have of reality is that it's out there. And that it's not shaped by mind it doesn't make any sense to that view. I mean, just that mind seems to that reality, sorry, reality is independent of mind. So that uh, any description of reality is seems to be objective, even if it doesn't stand up very much to really uh, to real exploration. And the kind of descriptions I'm thinking of you know, include everything, actually, but might be things like, I'm here and you're there. The walls are um, some indiscriminate, some kind of peachy orange colour. We could just take any simple statement and see a bit it, which, in normal mind, normal view, those seem to be reasonable um, and kind of fixed Ideas. They're ideas that reflect the view that reality is a fixed thing, an external thing, that mind doesn't have very much to do with it. And then there's the opposite view that, um, that has a, a kind of different quality. It's a view, it would be then, the opposite to the fact that reality is objective, external, nothing to do with mind. That's one extreme, I would say. The other extreme, which you sometimes uh, hear in less conventional worldview, some kind of New Age, uh, if you read the certain kind of New Age magazines, you might come across the view that far from being external from mind, far from being independent of mind, reality is created by the mind. Sometimes the way that's framed is you create your own reality. So the first view puts mind and therefore puts our participation in life outside of reality. Got nothing to do with it. Reality is out there. Life is out there. And there's, uh, there's not much room for a kind of an intimacy with life in there. When we go to the other view, I would say too much intimacy. All of life's brought in. We've got all the responsibility for it. I create reality. Oh my God. (laughs) 
there's so many things in this reality. Whether I look internally, right? Things that are really, did I create that? And yet we're given the, in this worldview, we're given the responsibility for that. If we're ill, we're told you, you made yourself ill. And you may have come across that, even people with terminal illness, sometimes being told that somehow it's their repressed anger that's made them ill. Too much responsibility. If we look outside at reality, at the world, we say, God, did I create that? And so in the Buddha's kind of skillful avoidance of extremes, which he made very, very much of in his teaching, avoiding being caught in any extreme view, I have this idea that mind shapes our sense of reality. It's very, very different than either of the other views. It certainly sometimes can sound like or be confused with this idea of creating our own reality and just to explore the idea mind shapes our sense of reality some example might be and of course mind itself has been shaped the mind we have the mind we bring to things has been shaped by all of our conditioning our family conditioning our educational conditioning, our situational conditioning. That's the things that have impacted on us in our life. The conditioning that's been going on for decades, right? the kind of hard wiring, the hardwired conditioning, the conditioning that goes in very deep in our childhood. As well as the, the kind of low-level, very recent kind of conditioning that might be affecting us in the moment. If we've just heard a kind of uplifting song, a piece of music, that might be shaping our sense of the world. You know, you listen to some sunny uh, track, makes you feel happy and you're walking down the street. Mind precedes all things. So mind itself is shaped over the course of our life and then mind shapes what's happening now if if part of our conditioning has been that we feel mistrustful for example things may have happened in our life that have made us feel mistrustful of others then if as mind proceeds experience if as we look out at the world as we look out at others if we're bringing to that a mind that feels mistrustful then the very high chances are that we're going to see mistrustful people. We're going to see people who don't appear trustworthy to us. There's, there's different ways to look at that. One can look at that in terms of the, that we're likely to actually attract untrustworthy people. right? But don't have to go that far. Just we're more likely to see people as untrustworthy because we're looking through a mistrustful view. If you're looking at, if your view of life is one tainted by suspicion and anxiety, you will tend to see things that look like you need to be suspicious of them and anxious of them. Anything can appear as a source of anxiety. So we arrive at Gaia House. And mind precedes all things. What's Gaia House? Does Gaia House have some absolute reality? And we could say Gaia House is this kind of a place and that kind of a place. We might experience Gaia House. We will experience Gaia House in line with the way mind shapes our perceptions. You might look out at a group of um, shawl-covered Buddhas like you all. And somebody, you know, mind precedes all things. So somebody will look by a mind a certain, uh, through a certain mind view and feel very touched and see, oh, these people sitting with such sensitivity, such grace, such stillness. Wearing their shawls so elegantly. 
And somebody else might look through a different mind and say, oh, such weirdos, <laughs> sitting looking so miserable, so forlorn, so dully quiet, wearing their shawls like mental patients. <laughs> So, the opportunity, the invitation, the implication of that basic orientating truth of Dharma teachings, that mind shapes all things, is the invitation to look at our mind and see what shaping is happening. And to see as much as possible the shaping that's happening as it's happening. And of course that's quite difficult. That's quite difficult because mind is the problem, we could say, in this way, as in what's doing the shaping. And yet it seems that mind is also the tool by which we're, we're doing the practice, using mind to look at the mind. And... We're trying to see the shaping of mind with a mind that's doing shaping. Oh dear. <laughs> Hence the need. Right? So, that our, so that mind doesn't just get very convoluted, adding more ideas, adding more shaping. Right? That would be the danger of reading too many books about meditation. Right? Meditation is the tool for unshaping the mind, or maybe more accurately, for seeing through, for seeing clearly through the shaping tendencies, the, um, the distorting tendencies, the solidifying tendencies of mind. That would be the tragedy in studying too much meditation. And, uh, a friend recently just uh, just came over to where I live in the Mulan. I was talking with him, and he was telling me how he'd read all these books on meditation, and but they didn't quite seem to meet his experience. And he was wonder- he wanted to take the next step, and wondered if I could recommend a book for the next step. <laughs> so I said, "Well, it sounds like you've read an." read a lot about meditation, maybe the next step might be to do some. And he was genuinely, completely surprised by that answer. It hadn't occurred to him, really, it's serious. He'd read all these books, he was very, very interested, and actually very sincere in his interest, but it hadn't occurred to him that the way, the next step, the way to, to kind of get inside might not be to read a better book, a more in-depth book, but to actually apply that. It was quite extraordinary for me to see her, somebody, you know, kind of warm-hearted, intelligent, bright, interested in these things, and who genuinely hadn't made that connection. So what's, what's the shaping of mind that's happening? We might ask ourselves right now, as we sit here. Hard to see the shaping that mind does with the mind. And so we invite ourselves to kind of look what could we say? I don't, it's difficult to use an imagery that an image that isn't in, in some way clumsy or inaccurate. But we might say we well, try to look below the mind level. Hence, the emphasis today on the kind of on the immediacy of our experience, on the visceral aspect of experience. Sensing into 
what's happening. Rather than describing what's happening, having an image, having an idea of what's happening. We can notice that, of course, even with the breath. And I would say however long we may have been meditating. The basic tendency of mind to want to make sense of reality through describing and having images and ideas about what's happening as a substitute for the living, direct contact with what's happening. That's a very, very, very strong tendency. It's very, very strong partly because it's incredibly useful. It's very useful to have a describing mind, an image-making mind, a dis- uh, an, an idealizing mind. It's very useful. It's what gives rise to much of the great sophistication of being a human being. And yet, in the same way that the capacity for idea-making, the capacity for rational thought, is a kind of evolutionary step up from, we could say, our animal cousins who don't seem capable of rational thought. In the same way, there's another evolutionary step beyond rational thought, which is necessary for making deep sense of life. So it's wonderful. I don't want to appear in any way anti-intellectual or anti-thought. It's wonderful that we've got this great human capacity for thought, description, idea, image. But we also have this um, kind of, this also human capacity was nearly going to call it a superhuman capacity. Let's not get carried away. Right? But a kind of, almost, we could almost say post-human or post-rational capacity to experience more directly than that which is influenced by the shaping of mind. The idea-making of mind. One of, the thi- one of the ways, so uh, we can't kind of, well, there's two, two bits maybe to that. So one bit is that we can kind of reach directly for a post-rational way of apprehending reality. And that's, if you want a fancy name for it, that's what meditation is. Right? This aspect of, of seeking to meet directly, just using simplicity of breathing of walking. It's a reaching for a direct contact that bypasses idea, bypasses image, bypasses thought, bypasses accumulated mental conditioning. And we reach for that every time we bring our attention back to this expanding in-breath, this relaxing out-breath. We reach for that every time we ask, not with the just mental, uh, not just in a mental way, but really with every cell of our being when we ask, what's happening now? So that's one aspect of, uh, of this practice. We could say it's reaching beyond mind's shaping of experience. And the other aspect is then understanding mind's shaping of experience. So looking into mind's shaping, uh, endeavouring to unravel mind's shaping of experience. We start to see even as we even as we uh, in the first aspect of practice kind of reach beyond reach towards a direct apprehension of reality even as we kind of uh, try and meet our experience directly 
we notice the, the, the mind's shaping happening, the production of ideas about breath, the production of ideas about myself, the production of ideas about others. You might wonder how many, given that, and given that mind precedes all things, probably quite a lot, but how many ideas about yourself or others or life have you come up with today? And how many times in one way or the other have we felt or have we thought, oh, I'm so... Da, 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 da. Or looking around us, oh, he's so... Mm-hmm. She's so... Mm-hmm. Or life's so... Mm-hmm. And that might not be the exact formulation you use, but you can probably recognize the familiarity of that tendency to kind of come up with an idea about reality, either personal reality, I'm so, interpersonal reality, he's so, she's so, or transpersonal reality, or let's say impersonal reality, life is so, whatever it might be. just kind of automatically, endlessly spewing out these kind of ideas about myself, about others, about life, that seem in that moment, and of course as we start to to open them up, we might see how contingent they are, how much they're just just kind of um, very partial views shaped by a whole history of conditioning. But in the moment we take them to be the truth. And we reinforce that seeming truth so often that we end up with a sense of ourselves that's defined by all those mind-shaping, mind-shaped ideas. Just to confront right now your sense of yourself. Who you take yourself to be. And what are the elements that contribute to that shaping. Name, maybe. Age, maybe. Gender, maybe. Some of these might be stronger than others. Nationality, maybe. Intellectual capacity or capacity for something else. Humor, humorous capacity or sporting capacity. The ideas that give rise to myself, to the general sense of, oh, I'm so, or I'm, you don't even have to have a so in there. And you might contrast the accumulated ideas that give you the sense of being this kind of a person with this kind of history and these kind of skills and these kind of problems and these kind of inadequacies and whatever else you tell yourself about who and how you are. I might contrast that with the lived experience right now. Does the lived experience, this sitting here, this being conscious, this participating in life, does it require a name for yourself, a gender, an age? Some activities in life do require those things, right? There's a kind of, uh, but it's a fairly superficial layer. It's a layer that doesn't really, um, that we don't need to identify very much with. It's perfectly possible for us to go through life saying, oh, hi, I'm Martin, I'm Mayor 41, I live in this country, I've done this and that in my life, and blah, blah, blah. Right? For the purposes of uh, social interaction, for the purposes of the exchange of information, for the purposes of uh, whatever it might be, for the, without thinking 
That's actually the truth of my participation in life. As we confront these shaping tendencies, we notice that one of the the, the kind of common features they have is that the ideas we produce about ourselves and others in the world give a sense of fixedness, a sense of solidity and staticity. Is that a word? Staticness. They make our, our, our sense of ourselves feel solid and static. That means solid, fixed in space, and static, fixed in time. That's, well, that's probably the, the, um, the most uh, salient feature of our ideation our idea making pretty much any idea we come up with about ourselves or others or life seems to fix the object the object being what we're thinking of self, other, world, object as solid and static That's the way we tend to experience ourselves. Again, we may be steeped in some kind of Buddhist uh, indoctrination that says, no, no, I am not a solid being. I am not a static being. I am impermanent. (laughs) I don't know why I start to sound like a Dalek when I say that. (laughs) But to the extent that we rely upon or that we give true, a sense of truth to the ideas we produce, to that extent we live in a world that seems solid and static. Where inner seems solid and static and where outer seems solid and static. And yet, nothing in this universe is solid or static. Whether we look to Buddhist teachings that have been kind of trying to make that point for two and a half thousand years, whether we look to contemporary scientific understanding that's just gotten excited in the last generation or two about the truth of that fact, whether we look, would be our preference hopefully, to the vibrant, ever-changing immediacy of our own experience, that fact is undeniable. Nothing is solid nor static. Everything is alive with change, with movement with unfolding either with growth or with decay nothing endures nothing stays the same and yet much of our lives it seems are an almost kind of direct denial of that truth. There's something so exquisitely beautiful in the truth, in in the recognition of the vibrancy and aliveness of change. The preciousness of each fleeting moment, bound never to reappear. And yet... There's also something profoundly unsettling, provoking, perturbing, threatening about the truth of change. Because it, it, uh, it unsettles all of that mental shaping, all that we've taken ourselves and others and the world to be. 
That's why coming close to ourselves can be experienced as a struggle. What we're struggling with is the status quo, is all the mental conditioning, is the, the desperate trying to make the world fixed and solid and static, as if that would somehow make it reliable, safe. That's why we live in such extraordinary denial of death. Because death is really the ultimate piercer of the illusion of solid and static. So, this, this way of exploring doesn't sound particularly inspiring, right? There was some bit a few sentences ago about beautiful and precious, right? But there was also something about what unsettling and uh, frightening and something about death and. Uh, <laughs> the beauty, the vibrancy, the immediacy, the preciousness is very, very, very available to us as human beings. Very available because it's, it's, it's the truth. The, the ever-changing, insubstantial, unsolid, unstatic, dynamic, ever-creative, ever-refreshing dynamism of the universe that expresses as this as this body as this heart as this mind as life lived in this location it couldn't be more available it's the very substance the very uh, it's the very what we are ness if that makes sense <laughs> doesn't need to make sense it's the very what we are ness and yet, our journey into that, our exploration of that, our uncovering of that, seems to have to pass through the unsettlingness, the confrontation with the ways in which we've relied on the static and the solid, or rather the ways in which we've relied on our attempts to make life static and solid. That, that static-making, solid-making activity has probably had a really helpful, stabilising influence on our life to a certain point. Right? When our minds were very young and unformed and unsophisticated, we couldn't have made sense of a completely unstatic, unsolid, unboundaried, kind of melting universe. It would, you know, might have all been a bit too psychedelic. But having built, having kind of, having constructed that model of life that's been functional and useful for us to a certain extent, we're invited to go beyond that model. That's why we're all here, right? That's why you're all here, because the old model is a bit broken. It's, it's run out of its usefulness, it's past its expiry date. And there's the sensing of, the, the longing for, the reaching out for a deeper, truer, freer way of meeting life. So let's use these days to explore deeply, to reach beyond our idea making to the most immediate contact we can make with life, the most alive, the most unmitigated contact that's available in breathing, in walking, in feeling, in moving, in the very fact of being conscious, of being human. 
and let's simultaneously not settle for our accumulated idea making. But see what might happen, what might open if we dare to unravel the ideas, to look through the ideas we, and the assumptions that we make about life, to see as deeply as we can what's happening. What's this being alive? May we all see through the illusion of solid and static. May we know ourselves and life free of time and space. May the goodness of our practice over these days really be in the service of our deepest human potential for the benefit of ourselves and of all of life. Oh, the evening stretches before us, open and free. Life invites us, beckons us in. We call it, for the sake of description, we call it walking meditation or sitting meditation. I invite you just to heed the call, meet life's invitation. Look in the silence through your ideas into life's embrace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.